Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are many ways to tell a story. A book, a movie, a TV show, a video, a comic book, a radio show. You can also use music, of course. A ballad is a story set to music. A lot of music videos have narratives. And for something more grand, you need opera or ballet or some kind of singing and dancing musical. The other musical option is a concept album. These are records where all the songs and all the imagery is somehow tied together by some kind of unifying theme or thesis. The music and the lyrics and even the artwork come together to tell some kind of story. Concept albums were absolutely huge in the late 1960s and 1970s, but then they fell out of favor. The popular consensus seemed to be that they were nothing but overblown, pompous ego trips that didn't hold together when subjected to intellectual scrutiny. In the 80s and 90s, the concept album all but disappeared. Punk and alt-rock had a lot to do with its death, because these types of projects were seen as vestiges of old rock and needed to be expunged from the culture. And that's pretty much the way it was for years. But if you look around today, you'll see that the stigma surrounding making a concept album has pretty much disappeared. Everybody's doing it now, including a lot of acts inspired by the very bands who tried to stomp out these types of records back in the 80s and 90s. So I'll tell you what, let's take a look at the history of all this. It's the concept album in alt-rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. That's Green Day with the title track of their American Idiot album from 2004, a record that tells the story of a character named Jesus of Suburbia while commenting on the state of America. It's easily the biggest alt-rock concept album we've seen in a long, long time, spinning off into a very successful Broadway show starring, occasionally, Billy Joe Armstrong himself. We'll come back to American Idiot and Green Day a little bit later on. Hello again, I'm Ellie Cross, and with all the concept albums that we're seeing these days, Nine Inch Nails, My Chemical Romance, Coheed and Cambria, The Arcade Fire, 30 Seconds to Mars, I thought it might be cool if we went back through the history of alt-rock to see where all this came from. Now, like I said, for years, it was considered uncool to make such an album. It was seen as a throwback to all those bloated vanity projects of the late 60s and early 70s. But if you look very carefully you'll see that the concept album has been very much a part of the development of the alternative scene as well. In fact, in a couple of cases, it's been indispensable. Who first came up with the idea of the album as novel? Well, I guess we could go back to 78 RPM recordings of the 30s. That's when singers issued collections of them doing show tunes. Folk music was a big part of it. Folkies like to tell stories with their songs, and collections of their music could be considered conceptual. 
Some people want to give credit to Frank Sinatra, who released a series of albums with titles like Songs for Lovers in the 1950s. There was no real unifying narrative. It was just a bunch of love songs. Or maybe it was Johnny Cash. He released an album in 1960 entitled Ride This Train, featuring a bunch of train songs. Ray Charles needs to be considered. He had a record called The Genius Hits the Road, where each song is about a specific state or city. You know, Georgia, New York, Miami, Texas. In 1961, an instrumental band from California called The Venture started releasing records built around themes like space and surfing and country music and even TV themes. But the first proper rock and roll concept album was probably Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was issued by the Beatles, of course, on June 1st of 1967. Now, to be honest, it barely holds together conceptually, but it is unified by this fictional band which explores life in post-war Britain. That opened the floodgates. The Moody Blues, The Who, Frank Zappa, The Kinks, and a bunch of other bands got into the act. The golden age of the concept album was in the 1970s. Yes, Rush, Genesis, The Alan Parsons Project, more from The Kinks, and of course, Pink Floyd. But what of concept albums from the fringes of rock? Well, I guess we could go back to 1967 for the release of The Story of Simon Simopath. This is a psychedelic record built around this title character who eventually dies. The name of the group behind that album was Nirvana, but obviously not that one. But if we're going to begin anywhere with our exploration of alt-rock concept albums, we pretty much have to begin with Bowie. Oh. So where David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust from his 1972 album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. A hugely influential album. It was Bowie's commercial breakthrough. The glam kids loved it. And so did many of the kids who would play a part in what would become known as punk rock in a couple of years. The album tells the story of an alien rock star named Ziggy. And that name was inspired by two people, Bowie's new friend Iggy Pop, and a Texas proto-psychobilly singer named Norman Odan, who went by the handle The Legendary Stardust Cowboy. He's a big fan of space travel, and Bowie was a big fan of him. Now, at first, this music was supposed to be used for a full-on musical, a stage show, or maybe even a TV program for the BBC. And the libretto, the narrative, goes something like this. The scene is five years before the end of the Earth. All the natural resources are about to run out. The older generation have basically checked out, leaving young people to do whatever they want. At first, Ziggy, this character, is ignored. But then he starts singing songs of hope about spacemen known as the Infinites, who will come to Earth to save us all. Ziggy begins to think he's a prophet. And then the Infinites arrive. And due to the antimatter makeup of their bodies, Ziggy, after coming in contact with him, dies on stage in front of his disciples. Whereupon the hitherto invisible Infinites take his essence and make themselves known to the world. At least that's how Bowie saw it. Okay, there may have been drugs involved. The most important thing about this record is that it presents rock and roll in a theatrical way, in a way that no one had ever seen before. The costumes, the concept, the play acting. And there was more. Six months before the album came out, Bowie declared himself to be gay. And given that homosexuality had only been decriminalized in England in 1967, this idea of a major pop 
pop star confessing his gayness had a huge liberating effect on those afraid to come out. Here's my favorite story about this album. When Bowie was performing Ziggy in London, a couple of thugs broke in one night after the show and stole all the band's microphones. One of those thieves was a kid named Steve Jones, and those mics would later be used in his new band called the Sex Pistols. The bulk of 70s concept albums were released by prog rock bands. But let's not forget the conceptual projects released by Germany's Kraftwerk. The first one was Autobahn in 1974. Side One was built entirely around the joys of driving the band's Volkswagen on the superhighways of West Germany. But that theme was carried through just that one track, which took up all of Side One, about 23 minutes. The next album, Radioactivity, from the fall of 1975, was about just that, activity on and with the radio. It was followed by Trans Europe Express in the spring of 1977. That album was inspired by, yes, riding a train across the continent. And then a year later, it was The Man Machine, which explored robots, automation, and space. And finally, we have Computer World in 1981. That record explored the rise of the computer within society and was amazingly prescient in its observations. For example, when the album came out, 1981, that was the year IBM introduced the very first personal computer. Kraftwerk was incredibly important and incredibly influential when it came to the whole idea of electronic music. So many things flowed from them. Technopop, industrial music, elements of hip-hop, and just the idea that electronics were just as viable when it came to making rock and roll as guitars. And contributing to their appeal was the clean thematic approach of each of these groundbreaking albums. Because they hung together so well, they became worthy of deep study and contemplation. Let me play you something from Computer World. The track is Computer Love. and Computer Love from their 1981 concept album, Computer World. Uh, and yes, Coldplay does know they lifted the melody line for Talk from the X and Y album. In fact, they did that on purpose, and uh, Kraftwerk was cool with it. There were precious few concept records from alternative bands in the 1980s. I mean, when you have bands like Styx and Queensryche doing them, that's pretty uncool. Didn't stop some metal bands like Iron Maiden and King Diamond, but alternative groups, for the most part, stayed away. Except one, and the only one I can think of, Zen Arcade from Husker Du. In the history of American hardcore, they were a major influence. They combined the power and energy of hardcore with melody and a few more conventional song structures. They sometimes added piano and acoustic guitars. This was a huge evolutionary leap for punk. Husker Du's greatest album was this concept record, Zen Arcade, a double set which came out in the summer of 1984. It told the story of a young kid who ran away from a troubled home only to find that life on the outside was worse. So he joins the military, he tries religion, and has his girlfriend turn into a junkie. In the end, it's all a dream. Or was it?
Husker Du from their hardcore opera, really, Zen Arcade, and the song Pink Turns to Blue. Now, there may have been other alt-rock concept albums in the 80s, but other than that one and Computer World from Kraftwerk, uh, no others really mattered. In a second, we'll move into the 1990s. With the rise of the alternative nation, a few artists took brave steps towards the concept record, and we'll look at some of those albums next. Welcome back. This is a quick history on the concept album in alt-rock. The 1970s had a few. The 80s were dire. But some artists began to warm up to the idea in the 1990s, resurrecting the idea in the absence of any meaningful releases from prog rock bands. The stigma that concept albums were grand, expensive, rambling, incoherent vanity projects began to dissipate. One of the first guys to take up the challenge was Trent Reznor. After enduring record label hell for a couple of years, he was finally free to start work on what would become his second album. There were some serious psychic scars from that time, and Trent explored his feelings as sort of a self-therapy thing. He rented a house in Hollywood, set up a studio, and went to work. Now, he claims not to have known that the house he rented was the same house where Charles Manson's people slaughtered actress Sharon Tate and all her friends back in 1969. He only found out later, and that realization affected the album especially after he unexpectedly met Sharon Tate's sister. He called this album The Downward Spiral, and while there's no straightforward narrative or story, the album holds together thematically. It plums the death of Trent's feelings about religion and relationships, the idea of a career, self-destruction, and the very sense of being. Things got so intense and personal that Trent was convinced to leave out a song called Just Do It, which leans a little too far towards encouraging suicide. As it stands, it's an agonizing listen. Powerful, profound, and extreme. And very good. conceptual piece that is The Downward Spiral. The next Nails album was The Fragile, and it too was based on a concept. If you examine it very carefully, it's in many ways a sequel of The Downward Spiral, with its themes of everything falling apart and the fear that comes along with that. But even Trent admits that there's really not much focus to it. There's also not a lot of obvious focus to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by The Smashing Pumpkins. But Billy Corgan says that it was definitely conceived as a concept record. Now, if you remember back then, the middle 90s, the idea of doing a double album was considered crazy. It was egotistical, vain, and just plain dumb. It was not cool from the alternative nation's point of view. But Billy fought back. Before the Pumpkins' third album came out, he was insistent that they were going to release, and this is a quote, The Wall for Generation X as in Pink Floyd's The Wall, which is probably the greatest concept album of all time. I don't need to tell you how that seems so very pompous, but with the help of the production team of Alan Mulder and Flood, they pulled off something pretty cool. There's no narrative, but there is a theme. The songs are supposed to be viewed as being linked about the cycle of life and death. Billy wanted it to serve as a message for people between the ages of entering high school and graduating college, Generation X at the time. 
Here were his experiences growing up, and here was any advice or observations he had. The album was divided into acts. If you bought the CD version, one was called Dawn to Dusk, and disc two was Twilight to Starlight. You see what I mean about the cycle of life thing? If you bought the vinyl, things were even more granular. The songs were spread over six sides. Dawn, Tea Time, Dusk, Twilight, Midnight, Starlight. And it works! If you listen to the album in order and follow along with the lyrics, you can see how things develop. Okay, now that you know the background, listen to the lyrics of this song with fresh ears. Doesn't it sound like a frustrated teenager railing against the world? Well, it's supposed to. The Smashing Pumpkins and Bullet with Butterfly Wings, a big single from their 1995 album Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which is, yes, a concept record. Another guy who was fascinated by this form of album making was Rivers Cuomo of Weezer. After coming out of the gate with the straight-ahead alt-rock of the Blue album, Rivers wanted to go in a radically different direction. It was a rock opera set in space. It was called Songs from the Black Hole. And the way Rivers heard it in his head, all the tracks would flow together to create one long composition. All right, let me see if I can summarize the libretto here. It's a bit weird. Jonas and his two shipmates are aboard a spaceship called Betsy 2. Together with Maria, the ship's cook, they set out on an adventure to the stars. Now, Jonas and Maria, who have a history together dating back to their time at the Star Corps Academy, end up having a baby together on the journey. The relationship then turns rocky. They land on some planet, there's a mysterious package, and, and after that it gets pretty murky. But basically the whole thing is an allegory for being in a new and successful rock band on some sort of uncharted journey. Now obviously Songs from the Black Hole was never released. There was no producer involved, so there was no third party to help sort through all these complex ideas. And this was also the time that Rivers was attending Harvard, so he was away from the band for long stretches of time that project eventually collapsed under its own weight. But some of the original concepts about love and groupies and fans and personal identity survived. They were mixed with elements of the story of Madama Butterfly, the Puccini opera, which premiered in 1904. Now, that's not really so strange, because keep in mind that Rivers was studying music composition at Harvard, so he would have been exposed to all kinds of stuff like this. Adding his space opera to the Puccini opera resulted in an album called Pinkerton in 1996. The name comes from B.F. Pinkerton, one of the main characters in Madame Butterfly. Now, in the end, we did get a concept album. It was all about lost love and sexual loneliness and frustration. And because all the lyrics are written in the first person, it comes across as someone telling the story of their life. Some people will go so far as to say that it's Rivers singing his autobiography. There were at least three singles from Pinkerton, but I want to play you something different. Two tracks on Pinkerton survived intact from Songs from the Black Hole. One is called Get You, where Jonas, or Rivers, feels rejected by Maria. And then there's no other one. Jonas blows it with a woman named Laurel and ends up back with Maria, although he's really not so happy about it. So let's go with that one. Nobody knows me like her. Like me. We're all we've got and we don't want to 
teaser with no other one from Pinkerton, the band's second album, a concept record, and one that was salvaged from a scrapped rock opera called Songs from the Black Hole. If you want to go deeper into this aborted record, a number of other songs from Songs from the Black Hole appear on Rivers' home recordings releases. Now, despite the success of records like The Downward Spiral and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, and because of the initial commercial disappointment of Pinkerton, the concept thing didn't really send out many deep roots in the 1990s. I don't think that we can really have any discussion about the evolution of the alt-rock concept album without talking about Tool. There are those who consider every single Tool record to be some kind of a concept album. There may not be a story running through it, but there are always themes. Let's focus on just one for now, Enema from 1996. Those who have studied the record, and believe me, there is lots to study, know about things like sacred geometry, Egyptian mythology, Babylonian symbolism, Scientology, the collapsing of the San Andreas Fault, chromosomal science, more teachings of what the band calls lacrimology, and uh, a recipe for cookies made of Mexican hash, recited in German, of course. It's all too complex to summarize here, but if you want to see how brilliantly Tool weaves together some very sophisticated concepts, real, made up, and imaginary, spend some time with their records. Seriously. Tool and Stinkfist from the Enema album. Trust me when I say it's high concept stuff. Before we leave the 90s, we have to offer up some props to Marilyn Manson. Three of his records form a conceptual trilogy, although it's not necessarily obvious. Here's what you need to keep in mind. They all come together to form Manson's autobiography. But, and here's the twist, this autobiography is told in reverse order. Each of these records has its own conceptual plot points. Antichrist Superstar, from 1996, has a three-part storyline that follows the rise of, uh, well, the Antichrist Superstar, a Nietzschean character who, after shedding the remnants of his humanity, turns out to be a pretty awful dude. Mechanical Animals, from 1998, portrays Manson as a drug-addled rock star named Omega. Basically, Omega falls to Earth and is press-ganged into being in a rock band called The Mechanical Animals. Any similarity to David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust in his film The Man Who Fell to Earth is completely intentional. Omega meets a being named Alpha, and they encounter a creature named Coma White. And let's just say that it gets pretty trippy from there. And finally, there's Hollywood from 2000, which criticizes America's love of guns, the use of God, and the role of government. At the center is a character named Adam Cadmon, an almost pure human being. Eventually, though, Adam's perfection is eroded by the world, and corruption and rot and disillusionment set in. Got that? All right, now let's run this backwards, applying it to how Manson views his life. He was born into a normal suburban family, untainted by the world, but then he looks around and is shaped by his country's guns, god, and government. He rebels by forming a rock band, taking lots of drugs, and doing some pretty depraved, dehumanizing things. And Alpha, Omega's buddy from Mechanical Animals, could be interpreted as being Trent Reznor, who was acting as Manson's mentor at the time. Then Manson emerges from this drug haze, shedding the last of his weaknesses and emotions, turning into a pure, logical, unfeeling, survival-of-the-fittest Superman kind of guy. Aha! All starts to make sense, don't it? 
Marilyn Manson and the Beautiful People, part of Antichrist Superstar, a concept album in itself, and the trilogy that also encompasses Mechanical Animals, another concept record, and Hollywood, yet another standalone concept record. There's one more album from the 90s worth discussing, although there's a real debate as to whether it really is any kind of concept record. Yes, Radiohead's OK Computer repeats themes of the malaise of modern society and consumerism throughout its songs and the artwork, but Radiohead themselves does not consider this to be a concept album in the true sense. They say no, and since they made it, we'll just have to take their word for it. So that's about 30 years worth of alt-rock concept albums. It took about an hour. Now we need another hour just to talk about all the concept records that we've seen so far in the 21st century. Let's see, we got Green Day, Queens of the Stone Age, Everclear, My Chemical Romance, 30 Seconds to Mars, The Arcade Fire, More Nine Inch Nails. And that's just a start. There's plenty to explain. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 